Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm the host of this podcast. I'm executive producer at HowStuffWorks and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And it is time for another classic episode of Tech Stuff. This episode originally published on April 8th, 2012, and Chris Paulette, my former editor and co-host and I, decided to sit down and talk about the science of ballistics and using a ballistic forensic science to, uh, to investigate a crime scene. So you are about to hear this classic episode where Chris and I kind of dig down into this very interesting field. I hope you enjoy we did uh, uh, a podcast on nuclear weapons recently. Yes, we did. Um, and right in the middle of it, for reasons that I can't even fathom, I started thinking about other kinds of weapons. And I thought, you know what? It would be kind of interesting to do a, a podcast on ballistics, which is basically the science of figuring out moving stuff and yeah, how projectiles. it works. Yeah, yeah, I I was uh, I agree that was a cool idea. Yeah, it's the science that deals with motion of projectiles. But of course, and, it's been used. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. No, you. no, no. I was going to say that you know, ballistics. It also is kind of shorthand for a specific branch of forensics. Yes, which is really what we're focusing on today. Yes, because uh, uh, when you get down to it, the actual study of ballistics is in large part a matter of physics. Yes, yes, there's a lot of science involved in this. Um, we know how we, much we hate science. <laughs> Dad gummit. Um, unfortunately for the scientists, but fortunately for uh, 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 crime mystery writers, uh, bullets do not always behave themselves in terms of physics. Like, they generally go where they're supposed to go, but they don't always follow the normal path when they get there. Yeah, let's just say that it's all due to little tiny individual differences on a very small scale because we don't mean to say that bullets somehow defy the laws of physics. No, but they don't always they don't always travel a, tr a predictable path. Right, right. You might think, oh, well, if so-and-so was standing here and shot such-and-such -such over there, then the bullet should be right here. That's that's not always the case. Yes. Heck, even, even saying the cartridge for the... The, the the case for the cartridge should be right here. That's not always the case either. Yep. So to really understand this, first of all, we need to talk a little bit about how the the forensics part of ballistics all came about in the first place. Yes. And, and really, ballistics, people have been trying to get uh, the science behind uh, forensics ballistics down for quite some time, but it hasn't really been that long that we really got it down pat. I mean, in the uh, the 19th century, uh, there were people who were trying to figure out how to do this, but they were the methods they were using were not at all scientific. Right, and to understand how you would be able to use ballistics to try and identify. Uh, a weapon that fired a particular projectile, you have mm -hmm. to understand a little bit more about what goes on with these projectiles. Right. So sometime around, oh, the late 15th century. Okay. Uh, the people who were creating firearms at that time discovered something, mm -hmm. which was that if you were to have a barrel of a weapon have some grooves in it to help 
direct the projectile to spin as it comes out of the barrel, mm-hmm. you improve the stability of that projectile's flight path. Yeah. yeah, previously they were what you call smooth bore. Right. Which was basically a a smooth tube. The inside of it was smooth. So you would uh you know, say take your musket and fire uh, a shot. Fire a shot from it. Um, actually, you know, this is, this is, I was getting ready to, uh, dismiss this in my head, but I think we should mention this. Um, you know, those early muskets where you would, you know, uh, you'd have to, uh, get everything ready. You'd have to put the wadding and the, and the powder in and then the musket ball and tamp it all down with the rod before you could fire the weapon. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's matchlock or flintlock, which we talked about in another podcast. Yes, we did. Um, but, uh, you have a, a, basically a roundish ball made of lead. Uh, which is fired using um, the explosive gunpowder, yeah. and the the gases propel the ball out of the tube, and you know they go well, they go where they go. They generally go in the direction that the barrel was pointing. Yes, more but after that, more specific than that, we cannot make it. Yeah, it, it uh, they weren't nearly as accurate as a rifled barrel, which is what right. uh, which is what Jonathan was just talking about, yes. where the uh, there are grooves inside the barrel, and they are. Uh, um, and they travel in a spiral pattern. Yes. As I remember correctly, didn't we talk about something in the rim when they started uh, grooving the barrel, but they weren't they weren't uh, in a spiral pattern; they were straight. Uh, it might may have been. I yes. can't remember. I'm but, sorry, but, we just, that just came to mind. But eventually, they did cut, uh, hit onto the fact that a helical groove, a yes. spiraled groove, would uh, helical. That's a good yes, word. Where where that would create enough spin so that the projectile would become much more stable in flight. Mm-hmm. This is. The same sort of uh, uh, idea you get when you have a football player throwing a football. Absolutely. Uh, American football. American yeah, football player. Um, <laughs> You're yeah, not because, allowed to touch the ball with your hands. You know, no, when, you no, hear no. About like a, when you hear about like a tight spiral, that helps that projectile, in this case the American football, maintain a precise flight path. Mm-hmm. Well, while that was very useful in making firearms more uh, accurate, uh, it was not thought of as a way of identifying a firearm based upon a projectile that had been fired for several centuries. It wasn't until the 1800s. Yeah, yeah. And uh, actually, I have the earliest uh, – this, this is uh, all from a, a website called uh, Firearms ID, and it was uh, created by a guy named Scott Doyle who did mm-hmm. some amazing research on ballistics, the history of it, and all of the elements that go into identifying firearms. Uh, if you are interested in the subject, I recommend you check out Firearms ID because it is truly exhaustive. I'm only going to give a small fraction of what he made available. Mm-hmm. So the earliest event he found, the earliest documented case of uh, uh, identifying a firearm uh, in a, a criminal case happened in 1835 in London. And what had happened was a, a homeowner was killed uh, by by a gun and uh, a servant was suspected of being the perpetrator. And uh, a fellow named Henry Goddard, uh, who was with the London police or with a branch of the London police, was assigned the case. And he examined the um, the the projectile that killed this shop owner and determined that it was made by a particular mold um, by uh, uh, which meant that it came from a specific company and then he looked at the uh, paper patch that was used in the the uh, the firing as well now this paper what it did was it created a seal between the powder and 
and the projectile so that when the powder ignites and the gases expand, uh, the projectile would have a good seal on it so it would it would fly out properly. Mm-hmm. And you saw that this paper patch had been made from um, some newspaper that had been in the room. They actually found the page where the newspaper had been torn to make that patch. And so they were able to uh, determine that it was, in fact, the servant who appeared to have fired on this shop owner. And so that was the first case. Now, in that case, it wasn't an idea, you know, specifically checking the bullet for these spiral marks that would indicate um, what gun fired it, because that's that's something else we should mention. These rifling marks, uh, in fact, that's why we call it a rifle. There's these rifling marks that are on the bullet itself. That's that's caused as the bullet travels down this this grooved barrel, mm-hmm. it carves little scratches into the bullet. Yes. And so these scratches are unique to a particular weapon. Even yes. even two weapons of the same make and model will produce different scratches. Mm-hmm. At, at least on a on a tiny le- you know at, beyond a superfluous glance you'll be able to see that there are differences. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like a fingerprint. If you are able to see you know tell that two different bullets uh, are close enough in identity that these these markings are really really you know to all intents and purposes identical. You can say that they were both fired by the same weapon. So if you happen to have that weapon in your possession and you've done a bunch of test firings and all the bullets are coming out the same way and they match the bullet that was used in a crime, you can feel pretty confident saying that that in fact was the weapon that was used in that crime. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean there. Um, <laughs> There are many cases in which you know this has been this has been used. I mean, um, one of the first I read, and I, I read an excellent article uh, by uh, Catherine Ramsland, um, in uh, in which she was talking about. Uh, do you remember uh, learning about Sacco and Vanzetti in your yes. American history yes. class? Yes, this, very controversial. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, this was a, a case in which uh, um, the payroll was being delivered to a shoe factory and a. Uh, uh, a couple guys came up and shot the uh, the guards, and um, you know they basically made off with the money. And uh, so they started looking for information. This, by the way, was uh, April fifteenth, nineteen twenty. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is when uh, they started looking. Uh, this this really was the incident that made modern ballistics uh, a science. I think um, just from from the way they handled it. So. Um, the investigators behind this uh, collected all the evidence they could, including the uh, the spent shell casings. Um, they went back to looking at uh, the manufacturers of, of weapons. Um, there were about six at the time uh, that they, they looked at, and uh, they turned out to be Remington, Winchester, and Peters um, that that could use these these casings. Um, and what they what they ended up doing was um, they started uh, you know looking around. At uh, you know what they could get from this information, and uh, as it turns out, one of the incriminating factors was the fact that for one of the weapons that they had, the only bullets that they could find uh, that would fit that weapon were in Sacco's pocket, um, which is pretty incriminating evidence. But it's yeah. not exact. But that's circumstantial, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they did was they talked to somebody who had worked with uh, sort of preliminary ballistics technology. His name was Albert H. Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And uh, he actually had been um, 
working with, uh, uh, with other cases and, uh, he wasn't completely scientific, um, in his methods. Uh, but he, he actually got stuck in the middle of the case and during this, uh, the Sacco and Vanzetti case, um, came in with new weapons that were uh, similar to the ones that they had and, and basically disassembled them in front of the judge who noticed that he was swapping parts with the other gun and went, no, you can't do that. And they threw it out. But they did give the information to Calvin Goddard. Yes, um, someone who is quite famous in ballistics forensics. Yeah, he's he's – I would argue that he's probably considered by many people to be the father of – the, this technology. Yeah. Uh, he worked with uh, a guy named Charles Waite at, uh, in New York with the Bureau of Forensic Ballistics. Yes. And he was using microscopes and a helixometer, which is a, a probe that you could use to uh, look at gun barrels. Um, I imagine that was used in the manufacturing of these weapons. Um, but uh, what he did was he he fired these the, the weapons used, or, or, or in Sacco and Vanzetti's possession, um, into a wad of cotton and compared the casing and the bullet to the ones uh, recovered in the investigation. And they were similar enough um, to incriminate both of them. Mm -hmm. Now, um, uh, Vanzetti, I mean, they put both of them to death, but uh, Vanzetti said he was innocent. And uh, apparently Sacco's uh, last words were, long live anarchy, which doesn't exactly... uh, he, he doesn't exactly uh, say, well, you know, I didn't do any of that. Right. But, uh, yeah, in, in, in later years, too, they've still – they continue to examine that. And uh, right now, uh, although it's still controversial whether or not uh, these guys were uh, railroaded or whether or not they actually did commit the crime, um, uh, they still say that uh, uh, the weapons – still support Goddard's findings even years later. So the technology we're using now suggests that those weapons were the ones used. Yeah. um, That Bureau of Forensic Ballistics was formed in in April 1925 in New York City. And the whole purpose behind it was that by 1925, you remember back in 1835 was the first time we see someone trying to identify a firearm uh, after a crime has happened. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the firearm itself was the one that was used. By 1925, there had been a lot of pioneers who worked on this idea of identifying firearms based upon the projectiles they fired. And uh, the problem was that the the resources were scattered, right? I mean, you, mm-hmm. had, you had some communities that might have an expert that resides within that community, but then you know you might have hundreds of miles of, of area where there is no expert. There's no one to call upon. Right. And so the bureau was formed as a resource for law enforcement agencies across the United States. Uh, there were other countries that were doing similar things. Actually, a lot of this early research where the idea was, hey, look, there are these markings on this bullet. They're consistent with every bullet that's fired from this particular gun, and they're different from all the ones that are fired from that gun. That kind of work was being done all over the world. In fact, there were a lot of people in France who wrote a lot of uh, uh, instrumental early papers on identifying firearms based upon their projectiles. Zuta lore. Yeah, and then in 1932, the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation here in the United States, was directed by a uh, their jaunty head of staff, J. Edgar Hoover. Jaunty. Yes. I think that's the first time I've ever heard it. I think that's what J. the J Edgar stands Hoover. for, right? Jaunty Edgar Hoover. Um <laughs> Really? He, uh, no, not at all. 
Uh, he, no, it was more like, really, you said that. Really? Uh, so it was a question mark. Yes. Like the sarcastic kind. It, right. it was an, actually an interrobang. Gotcha. So he directed that the FBI should create a lab for ballistics forensics as well. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this was becoming really serious business. And there were there were a lot of early cases between you know the late 1800s and, and 1920 that established that this was a legitimate means of investigation. So let's talk a little bit more about what you actually do when you're trying to identify whether or not a particular bullet was fired from a particular gun. First of all, it helps if we if we talk about bullets and cartridges because we and we've done this in another podcast but it always helps cuz a lot of I think people who are generally unfamiliar with guns don't know mm-hmm. the anatomy of a gun. Yep, and that's part of why I wanted to mention that about the muskets. Um because uh, you know, after a while they realized that the system that we're about to talk about it makes the weapons much more reliable using those things and faster to operate. Yeah. Um, because rather than having to put the powder and the, and the, the wadding and all that stuff in there and, and prepare the weapon to be fired. I mean, I'm, I, I saw, I can't even remember what show it was. I saw a thing on TV where they had somebody firing a musket as fast as they could just to see how quickly a trained, um, musketeer, musketeer could fire a weapon. It's about, Three times per minute. Yeah, three times per minute is considered That's an excellent time. Fast. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've seen. It takes I've a lot seen, of preparation. I've seen artillery crews that were using uh, period uh, cannons. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, it wasn't a cannon, but anyway, it was a, it was an artillery gun. Yes. A period artillery gun, and they talked about how even with a well trained uh, group of of troops who who were familiar with the weapon, it, three times a minute was considered to be the peak performance. Right. So. One of the the biggest innovations was the idea of why don't we take this system of gunpowder and wadding and shot and all that, and why don't we try and figure out a way of packaging it all into one thing that you load into a gun once and then you fire. Mm-hmm. So instead of having to load in all these separate pieces and pack them together and hope that it fires correctly, it's all packaged together. And that's the idea behind the cartridge. Mm-hmm. In fact, the earliest cartridges were these little paper cartridges yep. that had everything packed together, and uh, they were used in the Civil War mainly. But then well, eventually – That was sort of the step between where you put the cartridge in and then, and then the uh, the musket ball. Right, right, the shot. Yeah, the cartridge contained essentially all the stuff that you yeah. would have put in previously besides the shot itself. Well, the the modern-day cartridges have the – the uh, the fuel that's going to push the the bullet forward and mm-hmm. the bullet itself all packed together. So you've got a case that's typically made out of something like brass or maybe steel, depends on the the particular manufacturer and the ammunition involved. Pretty typically brass. And then you have a bullet at the end. The bullet is the actual projectile mm-hmm. that will fire out of the gun. The case remains behind. Right. Now the case also contains it contains powder, primer, and a primer mix. Right. And uh, and that's the stuff that uh, when a firing pin from the weapon hits the primer, mm-hmm. that ignites the primer, which then in turn ignites the powder, which creates this massive amount of gas, massive in a relative term, I mm-hmm. should say, um, amount of gas within the case. That's what pushes that that uh, bullet out of the the weapon. Mm-hmm. So the case remains behind. The case is actually uh, altered by this because the gases are 
pretty hot and they push pretty hard. So the case itself will change a little bit. Then you have to extract the case from the weapon and put a new cartridge in its place in the chamber of the weapon in order to fire it again. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we've also talked about uh, machine guns. Uh, so if you're talking about an automatic weapon, you put in you, – you have a, a magazine some with – Some feeding mechanism. Some feeding mechanism that uh, uh, will automatically pop the next – it will pop the spent cartridge out of the weapon and uh, – Load the next cartridge in and ready to be fired, and it happens very, very quickly. So, but it operates on the same same principle, principle. Yeah. So here's the interesting thing: a couple interesting things. First of all, we we talked about the rifling with mm -hmm. the grooves within the barrel, which are going to cut into the the bullet, uh, making a fingerprint on that bullet, so that if you were to find two bullets fired by the same gun and you were to compare them side by side, you should be able to see the same markings on both mm -hmm. because uh, it's it's going to carve it out the same way. Well, same sort of thing goes uh, – plays for the cartridge or the, the case rather for the cartridge um, the case the spent cartridge is going to have some markings on it as well um, some of it may be scratches just from you know the way that it sits in the chamber mm -hmm. or if the there if there's an extractor if there's an actual mechanical element in there that kicks that spent cartridge out uh, that can leave a mark on uh the case as well. So that way, if you don't, maybe you don't even have the bullets, maybe you just have the spent cases, you can compare those and see. So I mean, step one of identifying the weapon is identifying what caliber of bullet was used and you know what kind of cartridge was used because that'll limit the type of weapons that could have fired that particular ammo, mm -hmm. right? Because not every gun fires every ammunition. Right. As anyone who has ever worked with guns knows there are very specific kinds of ammo that work with particular guns and mm -hmm. you cannot you cannot interchange them. Chris and I have more to say about ballistics and forensic science, but first let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Each weapon now. Each manufacturer, when they make, when they put the grooves in there, and the the uh, the section between um, the basically the ridges around the grooves are called lands. Um, those metal ridges uh, basically are what help the bullet reach its destination by providing it uh, the spin and and accuracy. Mm -hmm. um, but they also are are uh, common to manufacturers. So uh, one weapons manufacturer might put six grooves in the barrel. Right. Uh, one might use four. Um, so one of so, the things, yeah. these marks left, and they are unique to every weapon, um, these marks are going to help uh, the forensics investigator, if, if, if they can find the bullets, they're going to be able to identify uh, which manufacturer made the gun. That'll help track yeah. it down. And then from there, they can look at other things. Uh, that'll help them at least narrow down. Yes. Say, well, this couldn't have been uh, this couldn't have been the gun that fired it because it's not even the same manufacturer. It's not right. the right people. Right. So we can rule this out. Yeah, from there, they can look at specific guns. Because multiple manufacturers can make the same type of gun. Yes. So, yeah. So narrowing it down to, you know, first you look at the caliber of the bullet uh, and the, the, the case so that you can determine what kind of ammo was used. Mm -hmm. That narrows it down to a range of weapons that might uh, be able to fire that. Looking at the actual patterns on the bullet itself and uh, will we'll give you at least an idea of the specific type of weapon used and the manufacturer. And then, uh, again, comparing that bullet with one, like a test bullet fired from 
a weapon will let you know if it's fired from the same weapon. Mm-hmm. So you're, you keep narrowing it down. This is very scientific. I mean, you're talking about going from the general to the very specific. Mm-hmm. And so you're just eliminating all the other options until what you're left with is the only, hopefully, the only uh, uh, possible answer. Mm-hmm. And um, there are a lot of different ways that that these the the cartridges can have marks on besides the ejection um, mark. There could be uh, firing pin marks, so you can see w- how the firing pin struck the bottom of the cartridge. That will tell you a lot about the type of weapon. Like there's certain weapons that have a very distinct firing pin mark. So like a square one, it's a good indicator that that was a Glock mm-hmm. that fired the weapon. And there are certain uh, marks that you're going to find that are common to particular types of weapons. So uh, forensics experts will use that. Uh, when they're actually examining uh, bullets, so let, let's say there's a there's a crime case. Let's make this more specific. There's a crime case in which someone was shot, mm-hmm. um, and the police have recovered a weapon uh, from a suspect. They do not know if the weapon is the one that was used in the crime. Mm-hmm. They do know that it matches the same um, model and maker of the weapon that was used in the crime, but that's all they know. Mm-hmm. A forensics expert, what they will do is they'll take the gun, um, they'll take possession of the, the gun that's from the suspect, and they'll fire it into a water tank. Yeah. And the water tank is a long uh, tank of water, several, it's usually around uh, 10 feet long. And it's got about three feet wide, three feet high, full of water. And on one end of this water tank, which is sealed on all sides, which is important, mm-hmm. so you don't want any stray bullets flying out, uh, there's a, a hole through one side, a tube, where you can uh, fire through that tube. It goes into the water. The water is meant to slow down the progress of the bullet. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as it slows down, it'll come to a rest at the bottom of the tank. You, The forensics expert will retrieve that bullet. And then they take that bullet and the bullet used in the crime, assuming they've recovered a bullet because otherwise there's no point in doing this. So they've recovered a bullet from the crime itself. You put that and the test bullet or several test bullets uh, into a macroscope, a comparison mm-hmm. macroscope. Mm-hmm. And you might think, hey, Jonathan, what's a macroscope? I've heard of microscopes. Well, a macroscope is it's it's a device that does magnify things, but it usually magnifies them by a pretty small multiplier compared to a microscope. Mm-hmm. You know, microscopes, you're talking about multiplying, magnifying something by a hundred times or more. Mm-hmm. Macroscopes tend to be Five, ten, maybe twenty times. So it's not it's not giving you that incredibly up close look that a microscope would. Mm-hmm. And it's called a comparison macroscope because you can actually put in two different items. So in this case, you put the bullet from the crime and the bullet from the test uh, onto the a little platform. It actually adheres there with some sticky stuff. Some some you know, it's essentially glue, um, and then. You uh, put it through the macroscope. The macroscope directs the images up to the viewfinder where you look in and you can actually see side by side the two projectiles. Mm-hmm. So it looks like it looks like they are you know right next to each other, even though they're actually on two different little platforms on the macroscope itself. And it allows you to take a really close look and compare those markings at a, uh, uh, a nice magnified level to determine whether or not they are identical or whether or not the markings are identical. Obviously, the bullets can't be. 
Yeah, because someone is probably saying, yeah, but Jonathan, why do they have to fire it into a water tank? I mean, why couldn't they just, you know, uh, go to the crime scene and shoot it off the wall and see what happens? <laughs> well, for one thing, of course, again, you don't want stray bullets. But, um, you know, I don't know if any, if a lot of people know that, uh, I mean, it probably is common sense when you think about it, but bullets deform. Yes, quite in, a bit. In the process of firing them. Um, I actually, I remember uh, my rifle recourse at uh, camp when I was a kid. Um, every once in a while, uh, the instructor would take us down to the end of the range, and there was a big pile of dirt there. So the bullets would go through the targets and hit the dirt and stop there. So we would go in and dig some of them out, and they would come out in the oddest shapes. The thing is, um, you want the bullet to be identifiable enough so that you can really see the markings on it. Um, And shooting it against something else that will catch it, uh, you know, it will also be deformed by the impact. If the water slows it down and it basically just drops to the bottom of the tank once this forward momentum stops, um, then it's going to be much less... Uh, affected by the impact of of uh, its landing, yeah, and um, then you can get a good idea of what it's actually going to look like and the marks that are on it. Yeah, and and sometimes the bullets retrieved from crime scenes are in really bad shape. I mean, because they, they've they've gone through sure. various materials, especially if you know they maybe hit like a door frame or something or you know whatever. Uh, and it can be a challenge to identify them just because the bullets themselves may not be in, in decent enough shape for you to be able to make a good comparison. But this is to try and make the, the conditions as ideal as possible so that you can uh, at least narrow things down. You know, mm-hmm. it, the goal really is to see if you can eliminate that gun from suspicion. Mm-hmm. Because if you can, then you know you're on the wrong track and you can go – direct your attention elsewhere and not waste time on something that ultimately is a dead end. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's your basic approach. Uh, it's kind of interesting, like the whole process of developing this. I mean, there were, there were earlier uh, 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 forensics experts who would compare bullets. They didn't have the luxury of a comparison macroscope right. to use. So in many cases, they were using photography. They would take... Um, uh, pictures of these bullets and try and uh, enlarge the photographs as large as they could and compare them that way Mm -hmm. and try and find as many points of comparison as they could between the two to determine whether or not a bullet was in fact fired by the same weapon Mm -hmm. uh, as another bullet. Uh, So again, points of comparison just like with fingerprints. You know, you you look for a certain number and if you you figure that if you find, you know, uh, like a dozen or two dozen points of comparison that are identical, the chances of that being just coincidence are pretty slim. So that's when you sit there and say, no, I'm pretty sure this bullet was fired by the same gun as the one that I tested. We've got a bit more to say about ballistics, but before we do, let's take aim at a commercial break. And another thing that uh, that Goddard did, along with his partner, um, back in the very early days of all this, he started. Com- they started compiling a database of information about different weapons, mm-hmm. um, which is, if you think about it, rather crucial uh, to doing this because it allows you to know, you know, in which direction and uh, which angle uh, a particular manufacturer's uh, lands are going to show up inside the barrel. Um, it helps you eliminate. 
you know, they can look at a bullet and go, oh, well, I know that it's not this or this or this or this. And by the scientific method, I've at least narrowed it down to one manufacturer. Right. And from there, you know, and, and having all that information in a database and comparing the weapons uh, and I'm sorry, the bullets side by side, it gives you um, the ability to scientifically rule things out step by step. And he really created a method and a, and a, a plan for doing this that set the stage for what we know as modern uh, ballistics work. Yeah, and it's, if you read about, again, I, I do urge you to check out more information about the, the progression of, of keep get, gathering this information, because it goes beyond just uh, comparing bullets to each other. The history of forensics is pretty fascinating, and in some ways, sometimes darkly humorous, and in some cases, just bizarre. Mm-hmm. Like, you'll you'll find out about people, sheriffs, who uh, found a victim who had um, a hole in their shirt, mm-hmm. and there was suspicion that perhaps a a gun had uh, you know the person had been shot by a gun, and that a bullet had torn the hole. So the mm-hmm. sheriff would take the shirt out to a firing range and fire bullets into it to see if the tears that were made by the bullets were similar to the one that was on the shirt in the first place. Well, they can tell um, whether a wound is an entrance wound or an exit wound. Yeah. Somewhat by the the type of hole that it leaves. I mean, if you're um, right on top of somebody, uh, it will um, do more damage if you're firing at somebody at point blank range right. um, than if uh, you are farther away. But you can tell by the direction of the fabric. You know, if it if it's going into the wound, then you could see. Uh, generally, that it's probably an entrance wound, and if the fibers are are spreading outward, then it's probably an exit uh, wound. And it depends on the bullet too. Of yeah. course, there are bullets that do a lot more damage on on one side or another, so that that factors into it too. Yeah, of course, they'll talk about things like blood spatter. Um, I have a great story here. I want to I want to tell. Stuff. So, all right. So in. Uh, in 1903, mm-hmm. a fellow named E. J. Churchill, yes, in London, England, provided testimony, uh, do, uh, testimony that regarded a, an experiment he had performed mm-hmm. uh, that involved shooting bullets into sheep skulls. Yeah, so skulls of sheep, not actual sheep at this point. The, the sheep have already shuffled off the woolly mortal coil, mm-hmm. and their skulls have remained. And what had happened was um, it was all revolving around a case where there was a a young woman who – or a woman. I don't know if she was young actually. A woman who was uh, shot and killed uh, in 1899 in Essex, England. And uh, they figured that she had been shot by a thirty-two caliber revolver. And so Churchill – took a similar revolver with the same sort of ammunition and a whole bunch of sheep skulls and started shooting the sheep skulls at various distances Mm -hmm. to determine, uh, to kind of compare the damage done to see how far away the shooter might have been from the victim by observing, you know, the damage done to these sheep skulls. And he came to the conclusion that the uh, the revolver was shot somewhere between six and twelve inches away from the victim, and this was used. This testimony was used in the court case. In fact, uh, the the accused suspect was found guilty and put to death. Uh, so 
the experiments early on were very practical. You know, mm-hmm. the idea of we have this one set of circumstances. We need to try and recreate it as closely as possible to to determine whether or not the uh, scenario we have in our mind is actually at all accurate. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know, like I said, the history of forensics is filled with stories that make that one seem tame and boring in comparison. Well, and and there are others that are oddly similar. Um, that uh, make you realize that it isn't uh, always exact because um, uh, Ramsland mentioned uh, a case that happened in Oklahoma where a, uh, a robber used a 357 Magnum and uh, there was a, a witness and he shot her right in the head. I just, sorry. Um, and uh, what happened was the bullet went into her skull, but it traveled around the inside of her skull before leaving. And she ended up surviving and testifying against wow. the, the, the robber. On, in another case, uh, somebody got shot in the wrist with a twenty two, which is a much smaller caliber bullet. Right. Um, and the bullet went into a vein, traveled into the heart, and killed the person. That is so bizarre. Don't always do. Well, and I, I've what also think I've even do. heard of people getting shot in the head, and the bullet hits the skull. And doesn't penetrate the skull, mm-hmm. but rather goes underneath the skin, travels around the skull, and pops out the other side without actually penetrating the skull itself. I remember, I distinctly remember uh, when I was living in North Carolina, a police dog getting shot in the head, and that happening. It's yeah, uh, yeah. This is getting really much more gruesome than I had intended. Well, I don't mean I don't mean for it to be gruesome, but I think it's a a, a situation. Well, I mean the dog the dog lives. So that yeah, good. that's good. Um, it's a uh, it's a situation that shows you that you know we sort of as- assume that if you get shot, if you get shot in the right place and at the right distance, that you know there are very few chances that you're going to make it if somebody's doing what they're supposed to be or what they intend to do. Let's say with the right. weapon, um, but bullets don't always behave themselves, which is why the, these ballistic forensics are so important because they you know they've gotten it down to a science so at least you have a better idea of what's going on and we should also point out Fascinating that, that, stuff, though. that this you know we've been talking a lot about bullets uh, the story is completely different if you were to talk about things like shotguns they do not have the rifled barrels right so uh, I mean you're firing shot at that point not yes. not a lots bullet. of little lots of little balls yeah usually of, occasionally you might have a slug you could do a shotgun yeah. slug but yeah. at any rate or you're a not, taser yeah, tasers. Uh, yeah, totally different story there. But in, in those cases, it's a, you have to look for different things. You can't, sure. you know, obviously you sure. can't compare bullets like you could with rifled weapons. Right. Um, and in fact, uh, Scott Doyle on his site writes, it should be noted that not all firearms leave consistent reproducible marks, but overall it has been my experience that around 80% of the firearms that I examine produce what is sometimes called a mechanical fingerprint on the bullets and cartridge cases that pass through them. Mm -hmm. So it is possible even for you to get a gun that through some reason or another, uh, the marks that come out, uh, uh, that end up on the bullets and the cartridges are not are not reproducible. Right. And it could just be that there's, you know, uh, some sort of weird faulty part of that gun. You know, it's, there's a lot of different factors that could, that could cause that. And in those cases, of course, then you can't, you know, the ballistics evidence, uh, as far as comparing bullets to each other is no longer really reliable. You have to rely on other kinds of evidence in, in that, uh, in that sort of case. 
I, I, I would be interested to know if uh, any uh, uh, law enforcement authorities who have worked with forensics and, and ballistics have uh, are listening to our show. You know, so please let us know if you you are, because this is interesting stuff. And thank you for the work that you do, because it makes a difference. Yeah. And that concludes this classic episode of Tech Stuff. I hope you guys enjoyed it. It's always interesting to go back and take a listen to these old episodes, some of which uh, in the upcoming weeks are going to be quaint because we recorded them so many years ago and so much has changed in that time. But I hope you join me for those. I very much enjoy revisiting them. If you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff or you just want to get in touch, send an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or pop on over to the website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. That's where you're going to find the archive of all the old episodes. You're going to find links to our social media. You're going to find a link to our online store. And we greatly appreciate you listening and you visiting our site. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 